The Regeneration of Lord Ernie From Incredible Adventures by Algernon Blackwood This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Read by Patrick 79 The Regeneration of Lord Ernie Part 1 John Hendricks was bear-leading at the time. He had originally studied for holy orders, but had abandoned church later for private reasons, connected with his faith, and had taken to teaching and tutoring instead. He was an honest, upstanding fellow of five-and-thirty, incorruptible, intelligent in a simple, straightforward way. He played games with his head, more than most Englishmen do, but he went through life without much calculation. He had qualities that made boys like and respect him. He won their confidence. Poor, proud, ambitious, he realised that fate offered him a chance when the Secretary of State of Scotland asked him if he would give up his other pupils for a year, and take his son, Lord Ernie, round the world upon an educational trip that might make a man of him. For Lord Ernie was his only son, and the Marquess's influence was naturally great. To have deposited a regenerated Lord Ernie at the castle gates might have guaranteed Hendricks's future. After leaving Eton prematurely, the lad had come under Hendricks's charge for a time, and with such excellent results. I simply swear by that chap, you know, a boy used to say, and his father, considerably impressed and rather as a last resort, had made this proposition. And Hendricks, without much calculation, had accepted it. He liked Bindy for himself. It was in his heart to make a man of him, if possible. They had now been round the world together, and had come up from Brindisi to the Italian lakes, and so into Switzerland and it was the middle of October. With a week or two to spare, they were making leisurely for the ancestral halls of Aberdeenshire. The nine months' travel, Hendricks realised with keen disappointed, had accomplished, however, very little. The job had been exhausting, and he had conscientiously done his best. Lord Ernie liked him thoroughly, admiring his vigour with a smile of tolerant good-nature through his ceaseless cigarette-smoke. They were almost like two boys together. "'Oh, you are a chap and a half, Mr. Hendricks. You really ought to be in the cabinet with my father.' Hendricks would deliver up his useless parcel at the castle gates, pocket the thanks and the hard-earned fee, and go back to his arduous life of teaching and writing in dingy lodgings. It was a pity, even on the lowest grounds. The tutor, to tell the truth, felt undeniably depressed. Hopeful by nature, 
optimistic, too, as men of action usually are, he cast about him, even at the last hour, for something that might stir the boy to life, to wake him up, put zest and energy into him. But there was only Paris now between them and the end. And Paris certainly could not be relied upon for help. Bindy's desire for Paris even was not strong enough to count. No desire in him was ever strong. And there lay the crux of the problem in a word. Lord Ernie was without desire, which is life. Tall, well-built, handsome, he was yet such a feeble creature, without the energy to be either wild or vicious. Languid, yet certainly not decadent, life ran slowly, flabbily with him. He took to nothing. The first impression he made was fine, and then nothing. His only tastes, if tastes they could be called, were out-of-door tastes. He was vaguely interested in flying, yet not enough to master the mechanism of it. He liked motoring at high speeds, being driven, not driving himself. And he loved to wander about in woods, making fires like a red Indian, provided they lit easily, yet even this, not for the poetry of the thing, nor for any love of adventure, but just because. I like fire, you know. I like to watch it burn. Heat seemed to give him curious satisfaction, perhaps because the heat of life he realized was deficient in his six-foot body. It was significant, this love of fire in him, though no one could discover why. As a child he had dangerous delight in fireworks, anything to do with fire. He would watch a candle flame as though he were a fire-worshipper, but had never been known to make a single remark of interest about it. In a wood, as mentioned, the first thing he did was to gather sticks, though the resulting fire was never part of any purpose. He had no purpose. There was no wind or fire of life in the lad at all. The fine body was inert. Hendricks did wrong, of course, in going where he did, to this little desolate village in the Jura Mountains, though it was the first time all these trying months he had allowed himself a personal desire. But from Domo de Sola, the Simplon Express would pass Lausanne, and from Lausanne to the Jura was but a step. All on the way home, moreover, and what prompted him was merely a sentimental desire to revisit the place where ten years before he had fallen violently in love with the pretty daughter of the pasteur, Monsieur Lesin, in whose house he lodged. He had gone there to learn French. The very slight detour seemed pardonable. His spiritless charge was easily persuaded. We might go home by Pontalier, instead of Ballet, 
and get a glimpse of the juror, he suggested. The line slides along its frontiers a bit and then goes bang across it. We might even stop off a night on the way, if you cared about it. I know a curious old village, Villeray, where I went at your age to pick up French. Topple, replied Lord Ernie listlessly, all on the way to Paris, ain't it? Of course. You see, there's a fortnight before we need to get home. So there is, yes. Oh, let's go. He felt almost as though it was his own idea, and that he decided it. If you'd really like it. Oh, yes, why not? I'm sick of cities. He flicked some dust off the coat-sleeve with an immaculate silk handkerchief, then lit a cigarette. "'Just as you like,' he added with a drawl and a smile. "'I'm ready for anything.' There was no keenness, no personal desire, no choice in reality at all. Flabby good nature, merely. A suggestion was invariably enough, as though the boy had no will of his own, his opposition really more than negative sulking that soon flattened out because it was forgotten. Indeed, no sign of positive life lay in him anywhere. No vitality, aggression, coherence of desire, and will. Vacuous rather than imbecile, unable to go forward upon any definite line of his own, as though all wheels had slipped their cogs. A pasty soul that took good enough impressions, yet never mastered them for permanent use. Nothing stuck. He would never make a politician, much less a statesman. The family title would be borne by a nincompoop. Yet all the machinery was there, one felt, if only it could be driven, made to go. It was sad. Lord Ernie was heir to great estates, with a name and position that might influence thousands. And Hendricks had been a good selection, with his virility and gentle understanding firmness. He understood the problem. "'I will do what no one else could,' the anxious father told him, "'for he worships you, and you can sting without hurting him.' You'll put life and interest into him if anybody in this world can. I have great hopes for this tour. I shall always be in your debt, Mr. Hendricks. And Hendricks had accepted the onerous duty in his big, high-minded way. But he was conscientious to the backbone. This little side-trip was his sole deflection, if such it can be called even. Life! Lighter and cheerful influences had been his instructions. Nothing dull or melancholy. An occasional fling, if he wants it. I'd welcome a fling as a good sign, and as much intercourse with decent people and stimulating sight-seeing as you can manage, or can stand. The Marquis added with a smile. Only you won't overtax the lad, will you? above all let him think 
he chooses and decides when possible. Villaret, however, hardly complied with these conditions. There was melancholy in it. Hendricks's mind, whose reflexes the sponge nature of the empty lad absorbed too easily, would be in a minor key, yet a knight could work no harm. Whence came, he wondered, the fleeting notion that it might do good? Was it perhaps that Lazan, the vigorous old pastor, might contribute something? Lazan had been a considerable force in his own development, he remembered. They had corresponded a little. Lazan was out of the common, certainly, restless energy in him as of the sea. Hendricks found difficulty in sorting out his thoughts and motives, but Lazan was in there somewhere. This idea that his energetic personality might help, his vitalizing effect at least would counteract the melancholy. For Villaret lay huddled upon unstimulating slopes, the robe of gloomy pinewood sweeping down towards its poverty from bleak heights and desolate gorges. The peasants were morose, ill-living folk. It was a dark, untaught corner in a range of otherwise fairy mountains, a backwater the sun had neglected to clean out. Superstitions, Hendricks remembered, of incredible kind still lingered there. A touch of the sinister hovered about the composite minds of its inhabitants. The pastor fought strenuously this blackness in their lives and, and their thoughts in the village itself with more or less success, though even there the drinking and habits of living were utterly unsweetened. But on the heights, among the somewhat arid pastures, the mountain men remained untamed, turbulent, even menacing. Hendricks knew this of old, though he had never understood too well, but he remembered how the English boys at Le Cure were forbidden to climb in certain directions, because the life in these scattered chalets was somehow loose and violent. There was danger there. The danger, however, never definitely stated. Those lonely ridges lay cursed beneath dark skies. He remembered, too, the savage dogs, the difficulty of approach, the aggressive attitude towards a plucky pastor's visits to these remote upland pâturages. They did not lay in his parish. Lazan made his occasional visits as a man and missionary. For extraordinary rumours, Hendricks recalled, were rife of some queer worship of their own these lawless peasants kept alive in their distant, windy territory, planted there first, the story had it, by some renegade priest, whose name was now forgotten. Hendricks himself had no personal experiences. He had been too deeply in love to trouble about the outside things, however strange. But Marston's case had never quite left his memory. Marston, who climbed up by unlawful ways, stayed away two whole days and nights, and came back suddenly with his air of being broken, shattered, appallingly used up. His face, 
so lined and strained it seemed as though it had aged by twenty years, and yet with a singular new life in him, so vehement, loud, and reckless, it was like a kind of sober intoxication. Oh, he was packed off to England before he could relate anything, but he had suffered shocks. His white passionate face, his boisterous new vigour, the way Monsieur Lezan screened his view of the heights as he put him personally into the parish train, almost as though he feared the boy would see the hills and make another dash for them, made up an unforgettable picture in the mind. Moreover, between the sodden village and that string of evil chalets that lay in their dark line upon the heights, there had been links, exactly of what nature he never knew, for love made all else uninteresting. Only he remembered swarthy, dark-faced messengers descending into the sleepy hamlet from time to time, big, mountain-limbed fellows with wind in their hairs and fire in their eyes, that their visits produced commotion and excitement of difficult kinds, that wild orgies invariably followed in their wake, and that when the messengers went back they did not go alone. There was life up there, whereas the village was moribund, and none who went ever cared to return. Coudrevan, the young giant vigneron, taken in his way from the very side of his sweetheart too, came back two years later as a messenger himself. He did not even ask for the girl, who had meanwhile married another. "'There's life there with us,' he told the drunken loafers in the Guilliam Tell. "'Wind and fire to make you spin to the devil, or to heaven!' He was enthusiasm personified. In the village he had been merely drinking himself stupidly to death. Vaguely, too, Hendricks remembered visits of police from the neighbouring town, some of them on horseback, but all of them were armed, and that once even soldiers accompanied them, and on another occasion a bishop, and whatever the church dignitary was called, had arrived suddenly and promised radical assistance of a spiritual kind that had never materialised. Oh, and many other details that now troop back with suggestions time had certainly not made smaller. For the love had passed along its way and gone, and he was free now to the invasion of other memories, dwarfed at the time by that dominating sweet passion. Yet all the tutor wanted now, this chance week in late October, was to see again the corner of the mossy forest where he had known that marvellous thing, first love. Renew his link with Lezan, who had taught him much, and see if, perchance, this man's stalwart, virile energy might possibly overflow with benefit into his listless charge. The expenses he meant to pay out of his own pocket. Those wild pagans on the heights, even if they still exist, there was no need to mention. 
Lord Ernie knew little French, and certainly no word of patois. For one night, or even two, the risk was negligible. Was there indeed risk at all of any sort? Was not this vague uneasiness he felt merely conscience, faintly pricking? He could not feel that he was doing wrong. At worst, the youth might feel depression for a few hours, speedily curable by taking the train. Something, nevertheless, did gnaw at him in subconscious fashion, producing a sense of apprehension. And he came to the conclusion that this memory of the mountain tribe was the cause of it, a revival of forgotten boyhood's awe. He glanced across at the figure of Bindi, lounging upon the hotel lawn in an easy chair, full in the sunshine, a newspaper at his feet. Reclining there, he looked so big and strong and handsome, yet, in reality, was but a painted lath without resistance, much less attack in all his many inches. And suddenly the tutor recalled another thing. The link, however undiscoverable, and it was this, that the boy's mother, a Canadian, had suffered once severely from a winter in Quebec, where the Marquis had first made her acquaintance. Frost had robbed her, if he remembered rightly, of a foot, with the result, at any rate, that she had a wholesome terror of the cold. She sought heat and sun instinctively. Fire! Also, that asthma had been her sole affliction, sheer inability to take a full deep breath. This deficiency of heat and air, therefore, were in his mind, and he knew that Bindi's birth had been an anxious time. The anxiety justified, moreover, since she had yielded up her life for him. And so the singular thought flashed through him suddenly as he watched the reclining, languid boy, Kudrivan's descriptive phrase oddly singing in his head. Heat and fire, fire and wind, why, it's the very thing he lacks, and he's always after them. I wonder... End of part one of story one.